Hi, this is Charles Fox, and I'm delighted to be here on On Screen and Beyond with Brian Zimrak. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome to another edition of On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 128 of On Screen and Beyond, and I'm your host, Brian Zemrak, and this is the weekly look into remakes, sequels, upcoming movies, TV and movie DVD releases, and our interview segment with a guest from the TV, movie, or music industry. And this week, our guest is composer Charles Fox. That's right. Charles has written more songs than we could name here in this short time. Uh, but Charles has written such songs as Killing Me Softly by the Fugees or by Roberta Flack, whichever one you remember it by. And he also wrote uh, I've Got a Name, which uh, Jim Croce made famous, and uh, Ready to Take a Chance Again that Barry Manilow made famous. And the TV themes such as Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Love Boat, uh, Wonder Woman, and many, many more. And, and it just goes on and on. Charles is going to be joining us shortly and he'll talk about many things including his new book killing me softly my life in music and charles has a fascinating guest and you don't want to miss this trust me okay and remember we want you to check out all our past interviews on on screen and beyond by going to our website on screen uh, or you can go to itunes and you could subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of on screen and beyond and while you're there leave a little you know a little remark or a review, review on us and uh, we'd appreciate that and we have interviews with bob barker and taylor lautner and tippy hendren susan olson robert fuller gary Berghoff. Uh, Bill Moomy, and just so many others. I'm sure if you look it over, you're going to find somebody he'll be interested in. All right, that's about it for now, but let's check out Remake Madness right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness. It looks like Spy Kids is heading for a remake. And the word is that Jessica Alba will star in it, so we'll keep you updated on that. And a remake of the Dracula story is in the works. It's called Dracula Year One. And it looks like Sam Worthington might be the star of that one. And Cobra, uh, the 80s animated TV series, uh, may be heading for a big screen release. And it looks like it's going to Cobra the Space Pirates. All right, so we'll keep you updated on that, too. That's about it for remakes from On Screen and Beyond. Coming up next, upcoming movies right here on On Screen and Beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
upcoming movies. Well, it looks like Bruce Willis may be hooking back up with M. Night Shyamalan, okay? And it's in an untitled project at this time, but it's set for a 2012 release. And it looks like Gwyneth Paltrow is also attached to it. So it's uh, currently in the pitch stage, so it's still kind of early, but uh, it looks like it's uh, something that might come our way. And the last time those two guys were together in The Sixth Sense, it's a good movie. And let's see, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is also set to play Marlena Dietrich in a TV movie set for a 2011 release. And it looks like George Clooney is set to direct a film called The Boys from Belmont in uh, 2011. It's about seven thieves who reunite to finish the heist of a lifetime that they started 30 years ago. That'll be George Clooney directing that one. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Sequel City. Finding out what's coming away as far as sequels, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Sequels, sequels, and more sequels. Well, word is out that Ben Stiller's Zoolander 2, we've talked about that before, is still coming your way eventually. Stiller says he's working on it. Okay, And it turns out that the writers of Kung Fu Panda will be writing The Karate Kid 2, the sequel, and a prequel to The Taker's is planned, all right? But time and uh, box office uh, <laughs> will determine whether it really goes any further than that. So we'll keep you updated as that comes your way. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV shows on DVD? TV shows on DVD, well, on December 14th, you can look for Army Wives Season 4 to arrive on DVD. And on September 14th, it's always sunny in Philadelphia Season 5. And it comes to DVD and Blu-ray. And be sure to check out our interview with Taisy Surface, who plays Margaret on the show. All right. And on September 21st, Season 4 of Designing Women arrives in stores. That's about it for TV on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Movies on DVD. Movies on DVD, well, A Secret of Kells, an animated Oscar-nominated film, comes your way on DVD on October 5th. And Splice also comes your way on October 5th. And Disney's A Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey will land on DVD on November 16th. That's about it for movies on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, we have the pleasure of talking with Charles Fox. Okay, Now, Charles, he's just written so many great songs. And, and everybody has heard at least one of them. You know, there's no doubt. I mean, all over the world. Uh, Happy Days, uh, Laverne and Shirley, The Love Boat, Wonder Woman, uh, The Wide World of Sports, uh, Killing Me Softly, I've Got a Name Ready to Take a Chance Again. It, it just goes on and on and on and on. Anyways, Charles is coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Fascinating interview with this guy. Nice guy. He's next right here on On Screen and Beyond. <laughs> Joining me today on On Screen and Beyond is a composer whose music is known worldwide. 
He has composed over 100 music and TV music scores, including the theme songs to Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Love American Style, The Love Boat, ABC's Wide World of Sports, and Monday Night Football. He has been nominated for two Academy Awards and has won two Emmys, as well as having written numerous hit songs, including I've Got a Name and Killing Me Softly. He has a new book out called Killing Me Softly, My Life in Music. It's Charles Fox. Charles, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Thank you very much, Brian. Very nice to be on here with you. And uh, your credits are amazing. <laughs> I'm looking over the list, and it's just so many different songs that you've written, and uh, I, I, I have them in my personal record collection because um, I collect TV theme songs and things like oh, that. Great. And it's just amazing. There's so many different ones and th- things that you have done that I didn't even know you did. Well, I've had a, a very full and, and very rewarding career um, since I started uh, in, the, in the commercial world of music. And before that, I was trained as a classical composer. And before that, I used to play in Latin bands in New York and salsa bands. And, and believe it or not, my, my original, my first songs, which I'm sure you don't have, were all in Spanish. Well, those I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't even tell you what they meant. Well, but, uh, but I got into it. I was very, I love the music. I used to play in bands. And some of the big bands in New York, by the way, like... Uh, Ray Barretto, and uh, even wrote uh, for Tito Puente and played with Tito Puente, so I was really into that music. Wow. Now, how old were you when you started writing? Um, I guess I was in, it was in high school, mm-hmm. uh, and I had a music teacher, composition teacher, who's, who was very influential in my life, and, and uh, I was able to get into his composition class at Music and Art High School in New York, by the way, which is a, an extraordinary school, and now it's called the LaGuardia School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a teacher, Mr. Lawner, Mark Lawner, who inspired me, and I was able to get to his class, and, and I was always interested in music, but through the class, I was able to find out what went into compositions and what was, you know, what, what, a, what a fugue was and what, a, what, what went into a sonata allegro form, and, and it inspired me. And, and uh, the very first piece of music I ever recall writing, other than a song, was a piece for clarinet and piano, and... When they performed it at the High School of Music and Art at the uh, semi-annual concert, uh, I was so excited to hear more music being performed. I, w- I was in the theater, and I looked around. I told everyone, "That's my piece. That's my piece." Uh, um, I was just, I was just so enthusiastic. So I think that stayed with me uh, to this day. I, I still love the idea of hearing people play my music, and yeah. I'm very proud to hear it played, especially when it's played well. Now, did you um, have a certain instrument that you dealt with when you were composing, when you were young, you know, when you first started? Well, I, I play the piano, and, and really half my life is spent uh, behind a piano, whether mm-hmm. I'm playing or composing. Uh, in my studio, I have uh, two sides to my studio. One was just a piano and a desk that's kind of formed around it that I had built for it, and I have a. Uh, the other part of my studio has a big synthesizer set up with all the computers and all that. And I, I kind of move from one to the other depending on what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. But I'm very comfortable spending my life behind the piano. I feel, I always feel comfortable. Yeah. So, so you don't have any problem going f- from the piano to the technical and, and, and computerized age music now? Um, no, I've been into the uh, I've been into electronics before the computer. Really? Well, before the synthesizer invented, I, I studied electronic music. In 1964, believe it or not, with um, a man named Vladimir Luchachevsky, who was uh, one of the creators of electronic music. And uh, there was an electronic music laboratory at Columbia University that was called the Columbia Princeton Lab. And uh, I 
uh, I had to be enrolled in the school um, in order to be able to take that class. So I first had to get into Columbia, and then then I took the class. And, uh, and this was 1964, so the synthesizer wasn't even... The, the, the synthesizer that you play with the keyboard wasn't even available yet. And, and when yeah. Moog, Robert Moog, invented the first voltage-controlled synthesizer, we played keyboard and electronic sounds came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually bought one of the first ones right from, from Robert Moog. So wow. I've been, been into this for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, as far as the book, uh, Killing Me Softly, My yeah. Life in Music, what caused you to you know, decide to do that? It's it's an interesting um, question. I didn't start off by saying I need to write a book. I really didn't. What happened was my uh, my mother had been living in California with us for the last ten years of her life, and a couple of years before um, she passed away, we went back to New York to the Bronx to the same apartment house that I was brought up in, and we cleared out the apartment and we took uh, my wife and I took all the uh, the important memorabilia, you know, that was still there, and, and tucked away in a dresser drawer covered with something all these years, we found uh, a shoebox. And in the shoebox were these letters that I had written home from Paris when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, studying with uh, extraordinary teacher Nadia Boulanger, who really gave me a whole life in music. And um, so from those letters, uh, when I brought them back, my kids were pretty enthralled to see what their father had written as an 18-year-old boy. You know? mm-hmm. and, uh, so my daughter Xeroxed them, and she made four copies for each of my three kids and one for me. And because uh, it was kind of hard to read, it was bleeding through on the uh, the old airmail stationery, uh, I had my assistant put it into the computer. And from there, my son, Robbie, who's a screenwriter, mentioned it to his agent, who said that his father-in-law was a, was a well-known literary agent, mm-hmm. and he probably would like to see these letters. And the next thing I know, I get a call from, from Bob Rosen, um, who said, I'd like to see those letters. And I was first very reluctant, saying, why would you want to see my letters? They're kind of personal. And he said, uh, well, a lot of time has passed. And he said, I think it sounds very interesting about the world of Paris in 1959, 1960, and your extraordinary teacher. Anyway, after a while, he convinced me I should send him the letters, which I did. And he called me back, and he said, you know, I think this is the basis of a book. Uh, it's very interesting evocative because of the time period and it's also writing about that time period around Paris where Paris is still black and white in a sense you know mm-hmm. um, writing about my teacher who was the teacher of uh, Aaron Copeland 40 years before me uh, as well as generations of extraordinary composers um, so writing about her on a daily basis writing about uh, about what I had learned and what Paris what what was, what was going on in Paris at the moment what I saw and who I met and um, and then I use that as kind of the centerpiece of the book, and, and, and this literary agent asked me to write the book around it, which was my life story in music around those letters. So the letters are the center section of the book, and uh, before and after is before going to Paris and, and what happened since. Like you say, you were classical compositions. Um, you, you do pop songs. You do TV theme songs. Uh, do you have a preference of where you like to, to the style you like to do, or I can't really say that to be honest with you, because uh, I've done so many different styles. I oh, welcome yeah. them all. I, I, I like to work with good musicians, and I like to work with the challenge is great. I love starting a television show. If you want to know the truth, I, I love getting into creating the, a new show. I mean, all the shows I've done, 
and actually, if I add them up, I've been involved with about 50 different television series. Wow. Um, not all of them made the air, not all of them lasted a long time, but I have done the theme for about 50 different series. Um, going back to Water World Sports, which was my very first one. Oh, that was and your first one? First one, yeah. And followed by Monday Night Football, but then a host of other shows that you wouldn't know, like the Jane, like the, uh, um, uh, Joan Rivers show, like the uh, Joan Namath show, believe it or not. Joan Namath show. Joan Namath. <laughs> I did a lot of the uh, Gitz and Todman television shows, like To Tell the Truth and What's My Line. And mm-hmm. Match Game. Match Game, yeah. Um, but the one that brought me out here was, uh, I came out to California to do a movie called Goodbye Columbus. Mm-hmm, which yeah. was a wonderful picture. And uh, at the conclusion of that, the head of music for Paramount, uh, asked me if I would stay around for another month and do this new series that they had a pilot for called Love American Style. Mm-hmm. So that's where it's kind of started for me in in, uh, in Hollywood. But um, I, I really love it all. I, I, and I like shifting gears from one to the other. I, I'll tell you what I'm doing right now at the moment. Um, What's at that? the moment, I'm, um, uh, I just finished a piece uh, for clarinet and piano and orchestra that I'm going to Poland next Monday uh, to perform. Uh, with Eddie Daniels, a great American uh, clarinetist, and uh, a fellow named Leczek Mozda, who's an extraordinary uh, pianist from Poland. Mm-hmm. And I was, I've been commissioned by the, uh, by the Polish government to write a piece commemorating the 200th anniversary of Chopin's birth. Wow. So that's what I'm doing right now. In between, I just, uh, just wrote a song with Hal David uh, for, called 90210 Beverly Hills, the official Beverly Hills theme song mm-hmm. that uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis even sing for the first time. Wow. And I'm, I'm finishing work on a documentary about my last trip to Poland last year that where I'm actually, a, uh, my life is on the screen, actually, uh, called A Hundred uh, Voices, A Journey, uh, which screens, by the way, is September 21st mm-hmm. around the country. On a Hundred Voices, A Journey Home. In theaters or? In theaters. There's 500 theaters around the country. Wow. And uh, it, it was interesting the way it happened. Last year, I was in Poland on a, on a trip, and I was asked to compose a piece uh, based on the words of Pope John Paul II. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a piece called uh, Lament and Prayer, which I then conducted the Warsaw, actually the Poland National Opera Company, at the Warsaw Opera House. And uh, at the same time, lo and behold, they were making a movie about this whole trip, which included uh, 70 cantors coming back to the birthplace of cantor on music. And so we did concerts all over Poland and then uh, in Israel. Wow. And this is a documentary picture that came from it, and it turns out that because my father was born in Poland, that they, they featured a, a good part of the movie about uh, my story. My father was having gone back to his little town in Poland to uh, visit. Hmm. So it's, that turns out to be a very important yeah. moment for me, actually, in my life. Huh. Like you say, you, one minute you're doing classical music, and then um, looking back uh, at some of the music you've done for like uh, H.R. Puff and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, th- that's so different. You know, <laughs> and, I'm used to it. <laughs> but the thing is, they're all good. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you. I mean, you know, I mean, I can remember as a kid, uh, you know. Everybody knew H.R. Puffin stuff or Lidsville or, <laughs> or or Love American Style or anything. However, to be perfectly truthful, I did not write the Puffin stuff theme, H.R. Uh, Puffin stuff. I, I only got involved with the movie after the show was already a success. Oh, okay. And um, 
yeah, I don't want to take any credit for something I didn't do. Yeah, but okay. I did do. Norman Gimble and I uh, wrote the score and a number of songs for the movie called Puff and Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Puff and then stuff. I did after that. I did a, another series for the for the uh, Kraft Brothers, Sid and Marty Kraft, called The Bugaloos. Yes, yeah. I did do the theme, and it is my music. Yeah. See, I mean, it's it's so you know so widespread that and 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 it's all enjoyable that you know everybody remembers those songs. It's well, it's. it's you know what? I'll tell you what's very significant for me. Um, I've, I've traveled really around the world, and, I, and I've conducted symphony orchestras around the world playing my music. And, and I've had the pleasure of hearing my music on television in countries where it's dubbed into languages I'll, I'll never speak. You know? <laughs> um, and it, it kind of, it, of course, some of my songs have, have, uh, have touched people, um, you know, again, and, and around the world. And it, it becomes a very significant thing when you know that you're moving people from my desk that I sit behind sometimes at late hours at night, uh, that eventually that music can be heard around the world and move people. I get a lot of letters from people around the, around the world. I'm sure, yeah. Um, telling me about some personal significance that it has for them. So with it kind of comes a sort of a, a kind of a, first of all, it's, it's very, it, it feels wonderful, but also there's a, there's a need to make sure that I keep doing Work that people would be interested in hearing. It never let, never let down. They never take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. I think I probably, I, I think I have a harder time writing music now than I had when I first started. And maybe because I want to keep it fresh. I, I, I don't want to rely on anything that I've done before. I don't want to rely on my fingers doing the thinking for my what, what music I have in me. You know, like because I'm at the piano. Yeah. So I keep searching for more, and I feel an obligation. I really do. I feel an obligation to do my best work. Every time, because you never know what's going to happen with that. I mean, never die. When we wrote Killing Me Softly, many people have asked me over the years, and perhaps Norman Gimbel too, did we know it's going to be a hit? Well, I never had a hit before. So I didn't <laughs> know what a hit felt like. Yeah. So I, had no, I had no indication it could be a hit. Um, and actually, I didn't even know at first when it was a hit. Someone called me from, uh, of course, Roberta Flack heard it on an airplane when she was flying from, from Los Angeles to New York. And by the way, Roberta wrote a beautiful forward from the book. Right, uh, yeah. She's a wonderful, gracious artist and friend and lady, and uh, she was very nicely, uh, when I asked if she'd write a forward, which a publisher asked me, she said she'd love to. Uh, well, she was on a plane uh, flying from Los Angeles to New York, and um, she and she tells the story in, in my book, actually. And um, she heard uh, a recording, our first recording, by a young woman at the time, Lori Lieberman, who we wrote this song for, Mm-hmm. And she heard it as a, it was pre-programmed on American Airlines, and she heard it. And she heard it a few times. She said she started to chop the notes down because she was so moved by it. Well, she came back to New York, and she contacted. She found me through Quincy Jones. Uh, Quincy gave him my uh, my number, and uh, next thing I knew, I was preparing my pictures one day in the music library, walking through, and someone handed me a telephone and said, "Here, this is for you." And it turned. Well, I hear the voice say, "Hi, this is Roberta Flack, and we haven't met, but I'm going to sing your songs." Mm-hmm. So. I, I had no indication of what a what a hit record would be. And as a matter of fact, then she 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 sang it and uh, she performed it in concert over here at the uh, Dorothy Shannon Pavilion. And I didn't even know she was doing it until we read a review in the paper that said the highlight of the evening was that song. So we went to see it, her in concert, and um, she still hadn't recorded it. But um, along the way, she did. And uh, it, uh, but I didn't know that it was even released. As, uh-huh. as a single record, it was so much out of the record world. Yeah, I was just doing my work. Yeah, right. I, I wasn't following trade papers and what, who's having hits. And um, I got a call one day from 
Colombian music publications in Florida asking me if they can have the print rights for that song. And I said, why do you want it? You know, he said, well, it's a big hit. Don't I know it? And I didn't know it. Um, so I went ran down to the neighborhood uh, you know, newspaper stand, and there it was in Billboard and Cashbox, record world at the time, all over about how big a song it's going to be. It was already like top 20 or 30 on the charts. I didn't even know it was released. Oh, yeah, it was a fantastic song. I mean, So it's just interesting how... how um, that's been for me in my life, you know. I never, I never could have predicted that to be a hit. But knowing that it has moved people around the world, and a number of my other things, as I said before, I feel, uh, I feel an obligation to do my best work every time now to make sure that if I do something, that it has a chance to survive. When, when a song like "Killing Me Softly," which is you know a beautiful song, um, is redone, of course the Fugees did it more recently, mm-hmm. and they had a huge hit with it. Um, did when you hear, you know, they added a different type of slant to it. Uh, d- when you hear that, being the person who wrote it, did, does it, did you like it, not like it, or, or how did it make you feel? Well, you know, it's always nice to hear people doing your songs. Uh, sometimes they, they sing horribly, you know. Um, there was a movie called About a Boy, where it was in, a, in the movie, and, and it was sung very badly by uh, Hugh, uh, the actor, I can't think of his name, um, the charming British actor, you. You Grant? You Grant, right. Yeah. And there he was in the movie singing my song horribly. <laughs> um, and I think that was, he was supposed to do that. <laughs> that was, he wasn't <laughs> supposed to be a great singer. Um, however, so it, on one hand, it's nice to see the song keep being out there. On the other hand, there's no fun to hear someone sing your song badly. Um, but um, we've had, I don't know, I, I lost track of how many recordings we've had, but uh, I lost track over at a, th- a thousand uh, records, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have new records all the time, I, uh, and um, I, I, of course, don't get to hear them all. But it's always nice that the song is out there moving people, and, uh, and it, uh, it always feels nice. Yeah. Now, TV theme songs, of course, seems like in the past few years they, they've they gotten less and less, or very, you know, they'll do just a little smidgen of a song if right. they have one at all, uh, which I think is too bad, because... I mean, like you say, looking over your songs, it's like these are all great songs that you know bring back memories. Yeah. Um, how, how do you feel about the the decrease of the theme TV theme song? I agree with you completely. I think it's the um, I think it's a general feeling among the the broadcasting networks that they're afraid to lose their audience uh, by having a, an identification with a show that's really a proper identification of a minute, a minute and a half, which we always used to have mm-hmm. at least a minute anyway. Um, and you now very often see the cast credit roll, production credits from one show on a side of the screen where no one can possibly read their name. Right, I know. So fast, they're just filling out you know, their obligations in terms of contractually. And at the same time, they're showing the new show coming on the air. So it's almost dizzying. Mm-hmm. And I think they're afraid to lose their audience. They're afraid to get the audience to get up and change channel. Um, I think they're missing a great opportunity, and certainly I had those great opportunities. Yeah. Um, I always took, had the feeling that when your show came on the air, that it was a real announcement, this is something you want to watch. And you have to make something visually attractive, which, which you know, I work with a lot of people who did those things. They paid a lot of... Uh, Miller and Milkers, for example, did Happy Days. And, uh, with Gary Marshall, of course, created it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, to them, the main title look was very important. Oh, the yeah. main title song was very important. Yeah, and uh, even in the case of Laverne and Shirley, which was only a twenty-minute presentation when it came on the air, it wasn't even a full pilot. 
we did a full main title, look, sound, video, song, and everything, because they felt that that song helps to sell the show. Oh yes, I have to agree, and, and a lot of people have to agree, but but we're not the people who make the who make the rules. Yeah, know? I know, and then the, and the problem is that <laughs> they make the bad decisions sometimes. And you know, it's interesting. So many people I spoke with have said to me that. Um, what they love about the, the theme songs is it brings them back to a period in their life. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like if when, when you heard, I don't know, the Batman theme. You know, you know, right. It brings you back to a moment in your life if you're old enough. Yes, oh, yeah. Uh, if you're old enough to, you know, whatever, whatever the show is. Uh, and a lot of my, uh, my things have been uh, associated with songs of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people have said to me, it brings us down back to the 70s when I hear your, your music and themes and it's a little more... Life was less complicated without all the terrorism going on in the world and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to be sort of locked into people's minds as a, at a point of time when things might have been better or richer, or at least just preserve nice nice memories. People like that, nice memories of different parts of their lives. Oh, yeah, and, and, and you know, like... Theme songs now on TV are either either they're using old rock classic rock songs, <laughs> or they don't have one or very little. Or well, they're ten, they're ten seconds long. That's what they give them. Ten right. twelve seconds. Yeah, and and it's it, it, years from now, if they say what was the theme song to Seinfeld or whatever, it you know you're going to say uh, I'm not sure. But if they you say Happy Days, everybody knows it. <laughs> well, we we. Um we had a chance to write a, 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 a song that could be part of the show. What's very interesting is, you know, this uh, this record that drops uh, on the jukebox is a single singular piece that they made. If you would slow down your your receiver, your television, you know, or the DVD copy of it, mm-hmm. you would see the jukebox at the beginning of Happy Days drops one record, and on it it says Happy Days, yep. music by me and lyrics by Norman Gimbel. Um, I have that record. The producer gave me that record. It's been sitting in a frame all these years, and just really. Oh, the one from the actual show. The actual show, yeah. Wow. So that record now was going into the Smithsonian happily for me. Wow. They asked me for a contribution for uh, some singular piece, and uh, I have that. And I said, "Well, how does that sound?" He said, "Oh, that would be fantastic." So that record of Happy Days, a singular record that was printed just for the, for the Happy Days main title. Uh, is going to sit in the case, I'm told, next to the Fonzer jacket at the Smithsonian Institute. Yep. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. So anyway, so looking f- to see if I would send them what, what else we had, um, I had my assistant look to see if we could find any original music that we could send along with it. And what he found is when I was working with Norman Gimbel in that song, as I worked with him and many other people much of the time, we were all so busy doing the work that uh, we were all home doing our own thing. And then we'd get together and polish out a song. So I have the lyric that Norman gave to me over the phone in my handwriting, but his words, hmm. with a lot of changes in red and, and, and all the various permutations and different rhyme schemes and things. So uh, I'm going to send that to them as well, because I think it's interesting. When oh, people, yeah. People may not realize a song as simple as Happy Days is. Sunday, Monday, Happy Days, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, it's, it's a simple concept. We, we only planned it to be similar to, um, like, Rock Around the Clock. Rock Around the Clock, yeah. Um, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, Sunday, Monday. That was Norman's idea of uh, how to begin the song. Hmm. And of course, I was just trying to emulate what was what was the record sound in the, in the fifties. Yeah, and it did. It, it brought you back to the fifties when you heard back that. Fifties. But what people don't know is the work behind it uh, that I, I have in this one lyric. Where you'll see for that simple lyric, ten different permutations of changing this, crossing this, side, this word, this thought, this metaphor, this idea. Mm-hmm. So I think um, sometimes something that sounds simple. 
I, I, I think we work very hard to write something that sounds very simple. <laughs> uh, sometimes it sometimes it can come off as a breeze. Killing Me Softly happened in the day. Norman gave me a lyric at night, and uh, from the day we talked about what a song should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I gave him back the melody in the morning, and the, the next day we're in the studio recording it. That's how fast it went. But I can see, and I've forgotten with with Happy Days when I found this lyric sheet, um, all the talk that went into it to make it just sound as simple and effortless as possible. There was a lot of work to make it look effort to make it sound effortless. Yeah, geez. and I think that's that's um, what I spend my life doing. I think I spend my life spending a lot of work, a lot of time trying to make my work sound so that music sounds effortless. Yeah. We'll be back with more of our guests right after this short break. Did now I I can always remember the uh, uh, what is it the Disney movie um, 101 Dalmatians that the there, there was a guy who was the owned the dogs and and he always talked about I can't remember if he said lyric first or or melody first I don't know if you remember that movie but <laughs> I remember the movie my friend produced it yeah oh okay well I remember he, I couldn't remember I can't remember if he said melody first or music because he was a, a composer uh, for for you. Does the melody come first or the the lyrics? First of all, you know what Sammy Kahn's answer to that was? What? What comes first, the melody or the, the lyric? Mm-hmm. The phone call. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Sammy said. <laughs> uh, and uh, actually, I work, I work... Well, now, when I work with Sammy Kahn, we did a, we did a film called The Duchess and Dirtwater Fox. Yes, I um, He wrote the... Um, he wrote the lyrics first, and if, if you want to know the truth, I, I've worked mostly that way. Norman Gimlin, I've written you know hundreds of songs over the years, and mostly from starting with the lyrics. Same with Hal David. Uh, uh, when I've worked with Paul Williams, uh, I think I've started the melodies first. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it really depends on the project, but in general, because most of what I'm doing song-wise comes from what you would call a book song. It, it needs to project something from a particular show, beginning of the show, or what the show's about, or a moment in the movie, or, the, or an end title, or a, or a beginning title of the movie, which either introduces you to the film, or sums up the film, or, you know, leaves, or, or, or we've done a lot of uh, musical theater, too, by the way, um, where, um, the, you know, the songs are what they call book songs. They, they describe a place in action, they move, the, they move the plot forward. So because of that, I always feel that if I start off with a lyric, then uh, if, if the, the lyricist goes first, and then we're in context lyrically with what the show is all about. And I, if the lyric is good, I have no problem adding music. The, music, the lyric speaks to me. Yeah. It, it just sings to me, frankly. Yeah. I try not to look at a lyric until I'm ready to work on it, because as soon as I look at a lyric, I have to work on it. I can't stop the music. It starts flying. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> By the way, it may not be good the first time. Right. <laughs> Do you go through a lot, like you were saying, uh, one night for one day for uh, Killing Me Softly, but yeah. do you find yourself going back and saying, oh, i got to do this differently and changing things often? I'm sorry, did he repeat that? When, when, you've, when you're writing a song, yeah. uh, do you tend to write it out and then make a lot of changes afterward? Or I'm constantly making changes with it. I know with the song, it's, uh, I have a very particular way of working with the song. First of all, I almost never write the notes down until the song is finished, first of all. Um, because I think if it doesn't stay in my head, it's not worth it. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody else told me that um, David Hess, uh, I don't know if you know who he is, he, he, he wrote uh, some songs for Elvis, and uh, uh, he wrote, uh, oh, uh, 
Speedy Gonzalez. Okay. And he told me the same thing. He says if it's if it's something that you forget, then it wasn't worth it to yeah. to, to write it down. I mean, you want to hear people to hear it once and sing it back. Yeah. Or have it played a couple times on the radio and say, "Oh, I want to have that song home or buy yeah. the record or whatever they sell these days." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we we write. I don't think we write down lows, but that's what we sell is downloads. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the way I feel. I, I'm. I just. Uh, I don't forget a melody if it's right, and um, and if I do forget it, then I think it's not worth it. Hmm. But I. But I'm constantly making changes, and I know that my own personal barometer is this: when I start to sing a song or the lyric, while I'm working on it, if I'm if I'm enjoying it, I think it's good. I, I as soon as I got to the end, I'm anxious to do it again. Yeah. And along the way, every time I do it, I make a little refinements. Um, if I, if it's not a good song, I start yawning in the middle of the song. I'm so bored. <laughs> I can't wait to get to the end of it. Then I know I don't have a good song. So I now, keep working on it. Have you ever had a song that's been recorded, you know, whichever one, ready to take a chance again, or, or Killing Me Softly, or I've Got a Name, or anything like that, that after it, it was written, written you've, it's been recorded, it's been a hit, have you ever even said in your mind, I should have done this on that that segment of it, or anything like that? I can't say that really, honestly, because you know, so, so much of the time, song, songs are open to interpretation. Anyway, uh, as um, as an owner of a song, you have control of the, the initial recording. Mm-hmm. So, but, but on the other hand, if someone takes your record, they you know some some important singer, big first star or something, they 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 give you back a record. You you're thrilled to get it. You know, yeah. They don't often ask you to to come in over and make changes. But a lot of the records I've been involved with, for the first time I've actually produced, you know, artists I work with. Um, but um, so you get used to interpretations, you know. So it, it it may not ever be the exact way you wrote it anyway. People play it and sing it different ways. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, killing myself is I always hear pretty faithfully to the song. Um, I think because of the nature of it, you know, I don't have people scat singer singing around. Oh, we had a lot of jazz players do it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, when you've got a perfect song like that, it's hard to change. You know, why change? <laughs> but you know, it's it's a personal statement. I uh, I got a name was a song that we, Norman Gimble and I wrote for a picture called "Last American Hero," mm-hmm. and um, we played it for Jim Croce on the phone. We thought he had the right sound for the picture. And Jim Croce was, was a new artist at the time, but he had a hit called um, um, called uh, I forgot. It was, it was before Bad Leroy Brown. It was called Operator. Operator, okay, record. yes, yeah. And uh, we just really liked his sound a lot. And uh, we called him, uh, played the song on the phone because we were at the last minute trying to get an artist so we could have someone with a name value release the record and hopefully help to promote the, the film and the song. Um, and over the phone, he said he'd like to sing it, which these days I think you'd, you'd never find an artist to do that anymore. You know, they, they collect songs or they write their own songs and they take out forever deciding and. Uh, he made a momentary decision to sing the song, so I, I made the track with a full orchestra here in Los Angeles with the uh, 20th Century Fox soundstage, uh, big orchestra strings and everything, and I brought it to New York based on just hearing his record, getting his key over the phone. Wow! Uh, and I met with him in his producer's office, Terry Cashman and Tommy West, and um, the first thing Jim said to me after we said hello, nice to meet you was when I played the song again for him because he hasn't heard it before. I mean, he hadn't heard it since that one time. Mm-hmm. So I sat at the piano, and he was next to me, and, and he said, you know, so happy I said yes to that song. He said, because I knew it would bring me closer to my father, who died at an early age before fulfilling his own dreams by singing this song. Well, of course, tragically, that happened with 
Jim too. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, young age. While in fact he's, he was on the road promoting our song. Huh. And then he said to me, uh, "Can I play a new song for you?" So he used his guitar, took his guitar, and he played. I, I have to sing. A, I have to say, a, "I love you" in a song. Yeah. And um, it's a moment I always remember very sweetly as uh, two songwriters swapping songs. You know, yeah. Jeez. Each one here, the other one songs. Well, years later, uh, I heard that um, Lena Horne was doing that same song in her act on Broadway. Wow. And I couldn't come to New York to see it, but when she did it at the Schubert Theater here in Los Angeles, I did go. And um, she started that sing, sing that song, but in a very different way than we wrote it, in a very different way than Croce did it. But very personally, very meaningful, and she infused the whole feeling of strength of a father. And what a wonderful man. She she made it all... What Jim was feeling, she made visual through this her interpretation. Very different. Yeah. And the audience got up, and uh, it was only the second number of the show after... Um, Stormy Weather, her signature song. Uh, but the audience started cheering in the middle of the song, and me too. It was like so exciting what she was, she was so involved in this, uh, passionate about this. So at the end of the show, I, I didn't I didn't know Lena Horne. I didn't make any arrangements to go back and see her. But I sent her flowers the next day mm-hmm. to her dressing room. I just said from a, from a grateful composer. And she sent me back the, the nicest note, which I have framed. Uh, and she said to the composer of my favorite song, uh, you, something like, uh, you have no idea what it means to me. Every time I sing the song, it makes me feel closer to my father. Hmm. So it's just an interesting thing about songs, how you make a, a connection. And actually, uh, in Lena, there's a biography of Lena Horn right now, which I bought. And it be, biography talks about her significance with the song. It mentions Norman and I. Oh, really? Her yeah. biography. So it's just interesting, the connection you make with people through songs. And a very different version. Um, but to answer your question, simply, I'd really never go back. Once, it, once it's once it's a record, it's out. It's, uh, yeah. I don't really go back and change it unless I have to reason to make another recording of it. Myself. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to just take a second and uh, let our listeners know uh, some of the things that you've done that they probably heard and didn't, you know, didn't realize it. And uh, you know, they'll, I'm sure they'll want to go out and get the book once they <laughs> once they know well, all the that different. Would be very nice. They'll, if they get the book, they'll find out how it all happened. Right. I have all the, my personal stories of how how these things came about and what led to what. Working with various people. Yeah. Now I noticed that one of the songs you you had you were involved with was um it wasn't a huge hit but it's something i'll always remember uh from the brady bunch and it was davy jones singing girl right and now you, you that's your song that's my song yeah. and did you write that uh for them specifically no that's also you know it's it's interesting but so many of these things have stories behind them that uh, hopefully readers who buy the book will find it interesting um Norman Gimbel and I wrote that song for a movie called Star Spangled Girl. It was a Neil Simon movie. Mm-hmm. And we wrote a song called Girl at the opening of main title. And uh, Davy Jones did the first record of it. And actually, I wrote this kind of a sweet ballad, and his producer produced it much more up-tempo yeah. than I would have thought, uh, but made a nice record. And um, But it, it didn't become a hit. It didn't go anyplace. Yeah. But one day, Davy Jones did a... Uh, brief appearance, or maybe a major appearance on the Brady Bunch, <clears throat> where they built his episode around that song. Yeah, yeah. The kids are shouting, screaming, Davy Jones is coming here, Davy Jones, he was a big star. Oh, yes. And of all things, he sang my song. Yeah, yeah. Well, from that show, with all the reruns, everyone that I've ever known, 
knows the song. I know it's. It was never hit, but yeah. they know it from that show. And then when they did a Brady Bunch movie years later, mm-hmm. it was again the feature song. Yep. With David Jones, however, here they did um, a kind of a real grunge rock and roll where it kept going further and further out from this like sweet little. Uh, Little ballad that we wrote with that girl's girl. Look what you've done to me. Yeah. Me and my whole world. Uh, they made a real grunge rock. And actually, my friend Steve Terrell, a great singer, um, produced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those songs that sticks in your mind all the time. And, uh, and a lot of people said to me, you wrote that song? I didn't know you wrote it. Well, that, that was the story behind it anyway. Yeah. Now, what about um, Ready to Take a Chance Again? Bear Mantle, of course, had a big hit with that. Yeah. Um, now, did you write that specifically for him or for a movie or anything? Well, oddly enough, we wrote, we did write it for Barry, even though we didn't know Barry and he didn't know us and he didn't know we were writing a song for him. Uh, that came from a movie called Foul Play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful picture of Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase making his first movie and Dudley Moore, his first movie too. Um, and the opening of the movie is about um, Goldie Hawn is at a party and she's kind of uh, she she's just been through a relationship and. Uh, and Chevy Chase comes over. He's a he plays a detective, but he's kind of a glib guy, and uh, he's trying to um, uh, to uh, get, get her interested in going out a date. He says one of the great date lines uh, of all t- uh, of all time. He said, uh, "Well, what do you say, uh, Gloria? You're you're a nice girl. I'm a nice guy. You want to take a shower together?" Uh, he was he was trying to be cool, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was funny at the end of that scene, and she looked at him like, "Hey, what a jerk!" And, she, and that's the end of the scene. And then we cut to the main title, and uh, we're high up on the, uh, on the uh, San Francisco uh, skyline. There's a high shot of Goldie driving her yellow Volkswagen convertible. And in the script, it called for a song called Taking Chances. Colin Higgins wrote that, that screenplay and directed it. And uh, the idea was that she's going to sing along to what would sound like the big hit record of the day, singing aloud full voice while she's driving this beautiful... Uh, that scenery while the main title is going on, introducing with it, you know who's in it. Yeah. And at the end of the song, taking chances, taking chances, she would see a guy hitchhiking, and the song was supposed to plant the seeds in her mind while she's singing along. Mind it, take a chance, you know. And she picks up this guy, and that's where the, the, the plot of the story starts. Um, so Norman came up with an idea rather than just taking chances, ready to take a chance again because she had already had a failed relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we didn't know Barry Manilow, but we decided the producers, Tom Miller, Eddie Milkis, and myself, and Norman, and uh, Norman Gimble, and uh, Colin Higgins, that there'd be no one better to sing the song than Barry Manilow, who was probably the biggest, hottest singer on the planet at that moment. Oh, yeah. So we decided to write a song for Barry Manilow, and hopefully if we wrote a good one, he would do it. Uh, anyway, all that came to, to, to pass. We sent it to Barry, he, he, loved, he loved it, and he did the record, and... Uh, and many years later, to this day, um, he sings the song. And Barry is such a fantastic singer, a great artist. He does one of the great shows of all time, actually. In oh, yeah. Yeah, Dallas, I've seen Las Vegas. It. But also one of the nicest gentlemen, one of the, one of the uh, most appreciative and, and uh, nicest people I've ever worked with and known. And uh, when we were in La- La- Vegas, well, not so long ago, uh, he invited us and some friends and and the song wasn't even in his, his, his show because he was doing more of a, a Broadway kind of a show. But because he knew I was coming, he actually rehearsed the band and put the song in the show. And oh, really? Me. So, I mean, how gracious and nice, nice is that, you know? Yeah. So, I have nothing but wonderful memories from everything about that song and the show and Barry. And, uh, 
and the nice thing is the song continues to to grow and have, have an audience. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, um, another show, uh, we won't do too many more here, but okay. <laughs> um, I noticed that uh, uh, Good Morning Miss Bliss, which is, of course, Saved by the Bell, right. um, was, did you do the theme song for that show? You know, I, I really can't tell you what happened with the show. I know I wrote this theme song called Good Morning Miss Bliss. Um, I really liked it, too, by the way. I thought it was a good theme song. I, <laughs> I still think it works well. And they used it. I don't really know what happened. I think they used it when it was called Good Morning, Miss Bliss. And they might have done it for a year, and then they changed the show or the style of the show. I think they made it for a younger audience than we did originally, and they called it Saved by the Bell, and they no longer used my theme, so I no longer had anything to do with it. Huh. But that was the, the origin of Saved by the Bell was it was Good Morning, Miss Bliss. Yep. Uh, I did write that theme. It was involved with the show at the early on. I, I just don't really have a strong recollection of what happened, but I know when they continue with it, they, they didn't continue with my music. And um, one, the last one will be uh, The Love Boat. Um, how did that one come about? Well, Doug Kramer was partnered with Aaron Spelling on that. Doug Kramer had been the president of Paramount Television when I did a lot of my television shows at Paramount, starting with uh, Love Mercosel. And he said, we're doing a new show with, uh, in partners, which, partnership with Aaron Spelling, Called the Love Boat, and, and, I, and he described it as Love American Style on, on the water. Uh, Love American Style was three separate stories that had a beginning, a middle, and end um, with these little, what they call, blackouts in between, little comedic blackouts. But the three separate stories. The difference with Love Boat was that the stories were all connected. In Love American Style, the, every story started and ended and then had a new cast. Mm -hmm. But there was a, a continuous cast with the, you know, with the captain and everyone, the uh, stewards and, the, and yeah. all that. Uh, the ship doctor um, and love boat, and then people come on the boat with their stories and their lives, and they all intertwine, and uh, you know, with the guy from the cloud and all that. Um, so, well, actually, originally when I wrote it, um, it wasn't a song. Um, we did, it was originally a tour, a movie. Got to think of it, and uh, it played, and I just did a score. And then I think we did two or three of those two-hour movies from the movies of the weekdays on ABC, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, Aaron and Doug told me that uh, the show was coming on the air as a series. Uh, would, would I do the pilot? So, of course, I did. So I said, you know, if we're going to do that, why don't we add a song? We, I wrote the theme, the Love Boat theme I wrote as a theme yeah. for the show, for the movie. And I said, why don't we... Um, why don't we get lyrics and have a song? I can sing it. It'd be much more of identification. They they loved the idea, and they said, who do you want to get? I said, how about Paul Williams? I just done a movie with working with him for the first time called One on One. We wrote a lot of songs for uh, Seals and Crofts. Yeah. Um, so Paul and I uh, worked together, and, and actually Paul then added a lyric to the music I had written. And I'm sure we made some changes. You know, it's always a very collaborative working on a song. <laughs> and uh, I asked Jack Jones to sing it. And he and, did. Uh, he came in the studio. I, I know we, it was a 24-hour marathon. I remember doing that show because uh, I was leaving, I think, 10 o'clock the next morning for New York, and I got to the studio 9 o'clock the morning the day before, and I, I got home just in time to get grab my suitcase and get to New York. It, it, and that's such a classic song. It's it's one of those songs that, you know, you hear it and you think you're on the ocean <laughs> cruising. Well, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I did take a cruise uh, years ago on the, what, they, what came to be known as the Love Boat. Yeah. Actually, you know, the, the show itself, Aaron Spelling told me this, uh, the show itself really helped to spurn the whole re, rebirth of the cruise industry. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, all based on that. 
And um, I can tell you, when, when the cruise that I took on, on Lubbock, which is actually Pacific Princess, um, every ten minutes there was another band someplace uh, welcoming you with this song. And, all that. <laughs> uh, and I think and it was used for commercials for years, advertising the, the uh, yeah. cruise industry. Now, Jack Jones' um, record wasn't really a bona fide hit. Mm-hmm. But Jack told me that when he sings a song wherever he plays around the world, it's like his biggest hit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I actually have a copy of the 45, so... <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's a collector's item. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Charles, I, I want to just finish up with sure. uh, two questions that take us away from your career completely and give us a more personal look at your 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 life and everything. Um what would be your favorite all-time TV show? That I did? That, no, that you like. That, that, that you, I like. That you like, that you like to watch. You know, um, I'm really honestly, with all my own television shows, I'm not a, a very voracious television watcher. Really? <laughs> uh, I, get, I barely watch my own shows, only because I was just too, t- just too busy, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'd just sit around watching. But there was a time I had seven television series on at the same time. Hmm. Uh, so I would look in just to see how it was dubbed, how it was mixed, and I used to go down to the dubbing session. Um, I personally, I love Curb Your Enthusiasm, one of my favorite shows, however. Yeah. I love The Sopranos. Those are the two shows that I would sit down to watch eagerly. I, I got in very different shows, obviously. Oh, yeah. But uh, for two very different reasons, th- those are, I would say, among my favorite shows. Other than that, I really watch documentaries and, and news broadcasts. Oh, <laughs> huh, okay. <laughs> what about movies? What's your favorite all-time movie? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'd probably have to say The Godfather, both of them. Godfather's Godf- 1 and 2. Good ones, yeah. Fantastic. Movie, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Charles, I want to thank you so much because this has been fascinating. We could go on for, for hours here because there's well, so many... I've found every, every uh, nook and corner of my music and my <laughs> credits. So. But I, I highly recommend that people go out and get your book, Killing Me Softly, My Life in Music, because it, it's going to have so much information in there, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Well, I w- what I would like um, people to know mm-hmm. is the book is a lot is about um, also my teacher. You know, people are very fortunate if we find just one teacher in our lives that make a difference. Right. Um, the woman I studied with in Paris, Nadia Boulanger, was, was 72 years old when I came there. I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I came there just for the summer to uh, summer school, conservatory uh, in, the, in the Palace of Fontainebleau, France. Uh, but I came there as an American conservatory just for the summer. And she asked me to stay on a study with her in the winter um, because she felt that she could really help me. Uh, I had very little money. My parents had very little money to send me. Mm-hmm. I, I never paid her for a lesson. Uh, she never wanted. She was only concerned I had enough to eat. You know? Wow. I used to see her practically every day for a, a different kind of a lesson, whether it was a private composition lesson, a group analysis class, a keyboard harmony, and she'd invite me for dinners and to concerts. Um, she was. She really... Um, she gave me the tools and she gave me the inspiration. I, I, uh, I, I say that to this day, he gave me a life of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the book is a lot about her, also an homage to her. And uh, yeah. I think people who might be interested in, in, in that would would, uh, would find that part very interesting too. How she, how she stayed with me all these these many years, many years later. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's my pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Very much. It's been fun for me to talk about. It. Nice to talk to you. And I want to thank Giles so much for taking the time to talk to us. He's a great guest, had some great stories, and uh, you can check out his book, which has got a lot more great stories in it. It's called Killing Me Softly, My Life in Music by Charles Fox.
Check it out. And that wraps up another episode of On Screen and Beyond. And be sure to join us next week for another interesting guest. Till then, this is Brian Zumrak. Take care. Thank you.